Good morning. And an early Merry Christmas. Well, we're in a study of the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 7, and Jesus has returned to Jerusalem. Jesus last was in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. He's been gone for about 12 months, and he's returned in John chapter 7 for the Feast of Booths, also referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the old English word tabernacle is just a fancy word for saying tent. And so the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents, Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of the Ingathering, was they made tents. They took branches and they put a cloth over it and it was a tent and they lived in a tent for seven days and it was to commemorate God's work for them, for the nation of Israel when they were in the wilderness after they left Egypt and they were in tents. And so they would live in the tent for seven days and then on the eighth day there would be a closing ceremony to close out the Feast of Tabernacles. Jewish men were to return to Jerusalem as pilgrims at least three times a year. One for the Feast of Passover, the other for the Feast of Booths, and the other for the Feast of Pentecost for three times. And so Jerusalem is packed here in John chapter 7. It's packed with pilgrims from all around Israel and, and even from the, from the dispersion pilgrims, that, Jews that might be in, Greek, in Greece or in Rome or in Egypt, anywhere. So last time in John, chapter, in John chapter 5, we saw that two chapters earlier in John chapter 5, Jesus stirred up a controversy. We're in John chapter 7, but the controversy still exists even in John chapter 7, two chapters later, which is 12 months later from a, from a, a calendar standpoint. And you remember the controversy back from John chapter 5, right? In John chapter 5, there's a, there's a paralytic, a man who's been paralyzed for almost 40 years of his life. And Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk. And the man does it. But Jesus has the temerity to do that on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders are hopping mad at Jesus because he does it on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's okay. It's okay that I did it on the Sabbath because God works every day of the week, including on Sabbath. And therefore, it's okay for me to heal on the Sabbath. What he was doing was he was equating himself with God, which just kind of turned up the volume on the Pharisees. Number one, it wasn't a violation in the first place for him to heal on the Sabbath. That was never prohibited in the law. But that was prohibited in their interpretation of law. And so Jesus kind of just avoids that issue altogether and he goes to the heart of the matter which is that he is God in the flesh. This stirs up the controversy to no end because now there are two issues for the Pharisees. Number one, this man violates the Sabbath, so they think under their interpretation. And number two, this man has the audacity to say that he is God in the flesh. That's the controversy in John chapter 5. Jesus is gone for 12 months. He's back in Jerusalem in John chapter 7, and the controversy is still Brewing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two groups of the, of the religious leadership of the government, because it's a religious government, the Sanhedrin, haven't forgotten. We'll, we'll see the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a little bit before this message is over. But in cha- John chapter 5, the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. 
and they still want to kill him in John chapter 7. Jesus, knowing their appetite to destroy him, knowing their appetite full well, Jesus returns to Jerusalem in chapter 7, and he hides somewhere so that they don't get him. Right? No. He goes to the temple, the most public place in all of Jerusalem, and he stands up in the temple, and he opens his mouth. And by opening the mouth, the word of God proceeds from his lips, and the crowd is totally dumbfounded. They are astonished at the wonder and the authority and the spiritual insight and the theological power of the word that proceed from his lips. And so they say, how can this be? This is, this is just by way of review, what we saw last time. And they say, how can this be? You're an uneducated man. You're unlearned. And what they mean by that is you haven't trained under some Pharisee because that was the tradition. You would, you would study under a Pharisee, a particular Pharisee, a rabbi, for a year, two years, three years, for some period of time. Jesus didn't do any of that. And so they, they are amazed at his teaching. And he then explains why his teaching is as impressive as it is. He says that his teaching is from the one who sent him. Which is to say his teaching is from the Father. Jesus says, I seek the Father's glory, not my own. My teaching is righteous and my teaching is trustworthy because it is the Father's teaching. And then Jesus proceeds to teach about the Mosaic Law. Right? The thing that the Pharisees are so proud of. They know so much about. They're supposed to be the experts in the law. And then Jesus exposes their hypocrisy with respect to the law in John chapter 7. This is just by way of review before we get to our passage in verse 25. He exposes their hypocrisy and he teaches them about Sabbath observance and circumcision because they have both those wrong. They don't understand the law. And so he teaches them about those two things. And then in verse 25... The Apostle John takes the movie camera and he moves the camera to the audience, to the crowd, specifically to the people in the crowd who are residents of Jerusalem as opposed to the pilgrims who have come to the feast in Jerusalem. He moves the camera to the residents. And so in verse 25 of John chapter 7, we read this. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? It's no secret. It's no secret that the religious, air quotes, that the religious leaders, I mean, talk about piety. It's no secret that they want to kill Jesus. How would you like a religious leader like that who's murderous? That's their religious leaders in Jerusalem. Everybody knows it's the worst kept secret that they want to kill Jesus. It's public information among the residents of Jerusalem, keep reading in verse 26. Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? I mean, the residents of Jerusalem ask a great question. This is a legitimate question here. Something's wrong with our leaders. I mean, they've been saying he's a deceiver, he's a faker, he's a poser, and they have wanted to arrest him. And kill him. But look at him. He's teaching here in the open. And they're not doing anything. Have they changed their minds? Have they themselves now concluded that he's the Messiah, that he says that he is? Then in verse 27, 
the, the, the car takes a hard left turn and we get a totally unexpected result. Look at verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. As soon as you think the crowd, wow, the crowd is going to believe in Jesus. The crowd's going to trust in Jesus. Eh, wrong answer. As soon as you think the crowd's going that direction, they don't go that direction. Because as the, as the Gospel of John unfolds, what we're seeing is John's statement from the prologue being fulfilled. He came into his own and his own received him not. He comes to Jerusalem and they don't believe in him. The popular belief at that time was that Messiah, when he came, that no one would know where he'd come from. That he'd appear on the scene and no one would know where he was from. That's just a popular belief that developed among the people. And they knew where Jesus was from. They knew that he was from Galilee. They'll refer to Galilee later in John chapter 7. So they said, well, this man can't be Messiah. Because we know where he's from. And our understanding is that when Messiah does come, where he comes from will be a secret. Of course, they're, they're wrong on two counts. Count number one is that it was never a scriptural secret where Messiah would come from. Right? We just sang hymns about Bethlehem, the house of bread. Well, it was prophesied that Messiah would come from the house of bread. That the bread of life would come from the house of bread. Right? Micah 5.2. Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So you've got this view, this popular belief, that no one's going to know where Messiah's going to come from. So the popular, the popular belief is unscriptural. Right? It'd be like Christians today having beliefs that are unscriptural. Oh, wait, we do that. Right? We shouldn't, but we do. This is a popular belief that is inconsistent with the Scripture because, of course, Messiah was prophesied to come from Bethlehem. So they're wrong on count number one with respect to where Messiah, with respect to the Scriptures, that the Scriptures would, would, would be silent where Messiah, Messiah's human birth would be. And count num- on count number one, I mean. And on count number two, they're wrong because they didn't know Jesus the way they thought they knew Jesus. Jesus wasn't from Galilee. Jesus wasn't from Galilee. He was from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. Sure, he was raised in Galilee, but that's not where he was from. He was raised in Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee. But he's born in Bethlehem, so ultimately he's from Bethlehem. And if they knew their Bibles, then they would know that... The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and if they would just ask and dig, they would learn that this man that is standing before them claiming to be Messiah, God in the flesh, was in fact born in Bethlehem. But their misconception about Jesus' human origin blinded them about his real identity. Same thing with respect to their misconception of his divine origin. Keep reading in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. It says Jesus cried out. Kratzo in the Greek. Kind of sounds like almost cry. Kratzo. 
He cried out these words. These are words of emotion. These are words of turned up volume. Jesus is fired up because he loves them. And they're going to hell because they refuse to believe in him. And it disturbs him. These are words of increased volume and emotion. And he teaches. Right? It says he cried out in the temple and he teaches. He was teaching and saying. In his emotion, he's not uttering unintelligible words. Blah, 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 as some people think is appropriate to do in church. No, these are intelligible words. These are precise words that have meaning, not unintelligible noises in his emotion. He teaches them, and he teaches them the things of God. He teaches them a solemn pronouncement. He makes in raised voice. You know when you get a little fired up, your, your, your voice, your volume kind of goes up a little bit. This is what is happening in Jesus. He is going to make this solemn pronouncement. And so it says he cried out. Sorry about the technology issues we're having. He cried out there in the temple. He's disturbed that they think they know him, but they don't. He is disturbed in their, that they in their disbelief are rejecting him and going to hell. This statement that he makes, you know me and where I am from, is dripping, it's dripping with irony. We're, we just read it, right? but, but, but we weren't there, so, so, so we don't get the facial expressions, we don't get the tone, but the tone of this statement is kind of like, you know me and where I'm from. Yeah, right. You know nothing about me. That's, that, that, that's the tone that we miss when we just have the, the, the words here that, that we read. You couldn't know, you, you know nothing about me. You could know about me, but you refuse to. And the reason you don't know me is because you don't know the one who sent me. You don't know God. Don't miss the claim to deity. Jesus is claiming deity. I have such intimacy with God that if you know God, you know me. And if you don't know God, you don't know me. I am so united with God, so intimate with Him, that if you know Him, you know me. And if you reject Him, you reject me. This is a claim to deity. What the Apostle John does in the Gospel of John is he takes us by the hand and he takes us into a mine of jewels. And all you have to do is look around. And there's a jewel there and a jewel there and a jewel there. The Gospel of John is full of claims where Jesus claims deity for himself, where Jesus to be, claims to be equal with the Father. And so when you hear this lie from the from the devil himself, that Jesus never claimed to be God, you know that it is utterly false because we have seen dozens of claims by Jesus in the Gospel of John to be equal with God. Claims of deity, and we're seeing one here just with a few words that Jesus says that you don't know me because you don't know the one who sent me. He who sent me is true, Jesus says in our passage here meaning he is truly God, and you don't know him. 
Do you understand how offensive this is? How insulting this is for a Jew to stand up in the temple and speak to the Pharisees. You don't know God. I mean, come on. They're the ones who are entrusted with the oracles of God. They're the ones who are entrusted by God with the law, with the Old Testament prophets, the writings, with the the wisdom literature. God entrusted Israel with His word. They were to be a kingdom of priests, but here they are a kingdom of unbelievers. This is a great insult to the audience, but it is true. And Jesus does not shy away from the truth. You know, sometimes people, when you're having a conversation or when you, when you see this kind of public discourse about something, and they say, that's so offensive. No one ever asks, yeah, but is it true? I'm not saying that, that, that we should be rude or obnoxious. I'm just saying that in our culture, the question of truth has been jettisoned. It's never about, is it truth? Is it truthful? It's always about, did you offend me? That was offensive. You need to apologize because you offended me. But, 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 but what if it was true, that, the thing that was said? That's irrelevant. See, truth is irrelevant in our culture because we rejected the one who is truth personified. Right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so here he stands before this crowd in the temple and he says, you don't know the true God. The one who sent me is true, meaning he is true God. This whole conversation that Jesus is having is about Jesus' origin. When Jesus says, God sent me, he's not talking about the way God sent the Old Testament prophets or Moses, right? I mean, Moses gets sent when he's 80 years old. If there's anybody 80 years old or older in the house, look at Moses. You think you, you, you think you don't have opportunity to serve God? Look at Moses. God calls him when he's 80. Get to work, boy, is what God says to Moses. God sends Moses when he's 80. God calls Isaiah and Habakkuk and Jonah and Hosea and sends them to work for God, sends them into ministry. That's not what Jesus means when he says he's sent by the Father. What Jesus means is he's sent from heaven to this planet. Jesus is talking about his existence before he was born. And then you get the great wonder of God that that the omniscient God is united with the baby and the baby grows. And and the scripture says that, that Jesus grew in knowledge. Well, how does that work if God is omniscient and, and it's one person, fully God, fully man? How does that work? He learned, but he's omniscient. I don't know. Because my little brain is too puny to figure that out. And even if God had given us a mathematical equation, an algorithm in the text that we would understand it, we wouldn't understand it. Because a God who is comprehended is no God at all. Jesus is saying, the Father sent me before I was born. Meaning the Father sent me 
from heaven to this planet. Jesus is talking about his divine origin. This is another claim to deity, and they understand it. The religious leaders understand his claim, and so they say, we need to arrest him now. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him. They've got to shut down his Twitter account. Now, silence him. Stop his teaching immediately. This is serious for them. Keep reading in verse 30. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The safest place to be is in the will of God. Though Jesus stands in the midst of murderers, no one can lay a hand on him. No one can touch him. They seek to arrest Jesus, but they can't. John doesn't tell us what God did. God has unlimited resources in his toolbox. I mean, maybe God just mentally prevented them from acting. I don't know. John doesn't tell us exactly what God did to prevent them from arresting Jesus. What we do know is that nothing happens without divine authorization. The arrest, brutalization, and crucifixion of Jesus will come, but it will come on God's clock, not on theirs. It will come on God's calendar, God's schedule. And until God, God's clock strikes midnight, no one can touch Jesus. The fact that nothing happens with divine, without divine authorization should be a source of great comfort to you and me. Because we live in a world that is hostile to God and hostile to His ways and hostile to those who have the audacity to share their faith. Those who have the audacity to tell their co-worker that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Do you do that? Those who have the audacity to share the gospel with their friends and family. Do you do that? If you can't say amen, you've got to say ouch. I mean, are you embarrassed about Jesus? We live in a culture that is hostile to God and hostile to God's ways and hostile to God's people. Those who align themselves with God. Today in America, Christians by and large are able to follow God without persecution, by and large. I mean, it's nothing like our brothers and sisters in Christ in Pakistan or Afghanistan or North Korea or northern Nigeria. But I believe it will not always be so in America. Because for generations, for generations we have been rejecting God and rejecting His Christ. For decades we have been consistently chipping away at the foundation of the skyscraper that is called the United States of America. At first just with a hammer and chisel, then we've, we, we, we took out our sledgehammer maybe, maybe a decade ago, a couple of decades ago, and now we take the big wrecking ball and we just jam it, whack it into the foundation like the law that was passed by our Congress just this past week. I believe a time will come 
when our nation will persecute the Christian openly, will attack the Christian. I mean, you already see it in, in some states where there are financial attacks against those in certain service industries who say, no, I'm not going to support the devil's definition of marriage. Now, some of you are offended because I describe same-sex marriage as the devil's definition of marriage. Don't be. Don't be offended by that. The devil is the most beautiful of all creatures that came from the hand of God. The devil is the most attractive, the most persuasive, the most impressive of all creatures that came from the hand of God. Don't think of him as some ugly, goofy-looking little, little, little red thing with the, with the horns and the pitchfork. No, 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 no. That's the way the devil wants you to think of him. But that's not the way the devil came from the hand of God. Beautiful, impressive, persuasive, And then wickedness was found in him, as we saw in the 930. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah chapter 14. He said, I will be like God. And then all of that beauty and all of that persuasiveness and all of that impressiveness and winsomeness is now used for deception. That's why Jesus calls him the father of lies. He deceived the woman. He deceived Eve in Genesis 3 by sowing the seeds of doubt with respect to God, you will not die if you eat that fruit, right? He takes God's word and he just flips it. He inverts it 100%, flipping it. Because God said the opposite. The reason I describe same-sex marriage as the devil's definition of marriage is because the devil is the master counterfeiter. God designed marriage between one man and one woman. Genesis 2. I mean, you got this beautiful description at the end of Genesis 2. And they were one flesh. But the devil is the counterfeiter. And so he takes God's design and he changes it. And the devil's intent is to destroy humanity. Because the devil hates you. He hates you. And you don't believe that at your great peril. So, it should be a source of great comfort for us to know that nothing happens without divine authorization. Nothing happens without the approval of God, and the safest place to be is in the will of God. That's for Jesus in verse 30, and that is for you and me in a culture that is growing more and more hostile towards those who are willing to stand firm in the Word of God. That's our responsibility, to stand firm in the Word of God, which is the safest place to be. That's what we should be teaching our kids and our grandkids. Look at verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in Him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, He will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Now we get some belief. Many in the crowd. We get some belief here. But don't miss what Jesus has done. Jesus has divided. Jesus created division. Some believed and some didn't believe. The Jesus of the Bible is divisive. 
You say, no, 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 no. Jesus is sweet and squishy and cuddly and warm and fuzzy. Well, it's true that Jesus is described in the Bible as meek and merciful and compassionate. But Jesus is divisive. Jesus is not some sort of image that Hollywood sells you where he's just kind of this, this, this guy who's kind of, you know, he's just kind of chilling a little bit here and there and, and he's walking around the land of Canaan kind of dazed and confused. Jesus is God in the flesh. Did he come meek? Absolutely. Will he come that way in his second coming? No. He came first as a lamb, then he will come in the second coming as a lion. But in his first coming, in the first advent, he spoke words that were divisive. Jesus divides humanity, and the Apostle John tells us this many times in the Gospel of John. John 7, verse 12, There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary. He leads the people astray. John 7, verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. The him there is Jesus. John 9, 16. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. John 10, verse 19. A division occurred again among the Jews because, these, because of these words, because of Jesus's words. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no gray area. Not with God in the flesh. Jesus divides humanity. Look at his words in Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me. Only two options. Because he didn't intend, he did not intend to leave us any other option. There's no third option. You're either with him or you are opposed to him. Look at Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, that's an interesting verse. I guess the angels were mistaken in Luke 2, where they announce peace on earth when the baby Jesus is born. Mike, I guess we shouldn't have sang that song. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have sang that song about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, because it says... Peace on earth. I guess we were wrong. I mean, look, Jesus says it right there, right? Matthew 10, 34. He says it twice. I didn't come to bring peace. That's what Jesus says. No. The angels were not mistaken. And no, we weren't wrong for singing. Hark the herald angels sing. What's wrong is to cherry pick words out of the scripture. What's wrong is to take two or three words out of the Scripture and then to say, that's my doctrine. That's my verse of the day. All things work together for good, like we saw last time. No, they don't. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. No, they don't. For the unbeliever, they work for disaster and calamity and judgment and destruction. The verse says all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. And the, the language from the angels in Luke 2, 4 isn't just peace on earth. 
You can't take words out of context and lie about the text. The angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. God brings a sword to divide humanity. Those with whom God is well pleased and those with whom God is unpleased and are subject to his fierce judgment. God is pleased, pleased with those who come to him by faith. He says, you're my children, and I give you my righteousness. That's the one who is at peace with God. That's what Christmas is about. And God is unpleased with those who reject his Christ. This is what Jesus means when he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Peace is only for those who submit. The sword divides humanity. Like the way a sword cuts something, Jesus' words cut humanity into two different groups. There are only two groups. I love the words of C.S. Lewis. There are only two types of people. There are those who say, Thy will be done, God. And there are those to whom God says, Thy will be done. There are only two groups. And as a sword cuts, so the word of God, the words of Jesus cut and they divide humanity. I am not saying that Jesus was rude or obnoxious. I'm not advocating jerks for Jesus. We've got enough of those. I'm not advocating that at all. Jesus was meek and merciful and gentle, but he spoke the truth, and the truth is divisive. The deeper the truth, the more divisive it is. We're called to speak the truth in love, but we're called to speak it. And be careful. Be careful as your culture keeps putting the heat on you. It puts the heat on you. Shh. Be silenced. Just talk about God in church. That's where God belongs. It's okay to talk about God in church. But the minute you walk out of those doors, shut your mouth. We don't want to hear it about God. That's what the culture is selling you. Don't submit. You are, you are to submit, but you're to submit to God. And God says that you're a light, you're salt and light. You're his representative to a lost and dying world. In verse 31, some people were believing in Jesus. The religious leaders feel threatened because of that, and so they decide that it is time to act. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They sent officers to seize him. We know from verse 10 that initially the people were afraid to speak openly about Jesus. They were afraid of the religious leaders. But now, although in hushed tones, the people are believing. The people are believing publicly, the religious leaders say, that's it. We've had enough. We've let this go far enough. We need to silence Jesus. And so they issue an arrest warrant. John tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees here were united in arresting Jesus. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the chief priests are almost all Sadducees. So you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're who make up the, the, the Sanhedrin, the group, the, the government, 
the group that, that, that governs Israel, the governing body of Israel, these two groups don't like each other. But what united them was their hate of Jesus. Their hate of Jesus, their desire to eliminate and silence Jesus was so strong that they're willing to bury the hatchet, not in each other's backs, but in the ground, at least for a while. We're going to make peace between the two of us because we've got a common enemy, and that enemy is Jesus. So what's happening here is this political alliance. You know, when you, when you see this elected official and that elected official, and usually they're like that. They're at each other's throats. And then those two elected officials unite for some particular bill. You say, whoa, <laughs> something's going on here. Same sort of idea here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees holding hands and uniting to get rid of Jesus. If I were to sum up the conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I'd say it this way. The Sadducees were very political and the Pharisees were very religious. The Sadducees were too political for the Pharisees and the Pharisees were too religious for the Sadducees. Now that's that's kind of a maybe an oversimplification, simplification, but I think it's a fair statement. I mean, this, I'm not saying the Sadducees weren't religious. They were. They're both religious. It's just the Sadducees are a whole lot more political than the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are a whole lot more religious than the Sadducees. To kind of unpack that a little bit, let me give you just a little bit of background between these two groups. The Sadducees are the main ones who control the government, who control the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees really didn't have as much control as the Sadducees did. The Sadducees are wealthy, and they're very, very political. They're political opportunists. And you see that because they are willing to align themselves with their Gentile overlords. Remember when Alexander the Great, he, he united Greece. He's a Macedonian. He unites Greece because Greece is a bunch of separate city-states. So he first unites Greece. And then he goes east and he takes Israel, the, 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 the leaders of Israel at the time when Alexander comes into, into the Levant, he, they, they pull out their scripture and say, see, you're prophesied here. Alexander was, not by name, but he's prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, in, in Daniel, for example. And so... He, he takes the Levant. He takes where, where Israel is. He keeps going east. He takes, per, he takes Babylon, he, he, Persia. And then he dies unexpectedly. And so his generals divide up the Middle East. And one of his generals is Seleucid. And Seleucid has the area of the Levant or, Can, or Canaan or Israel. And so the Seleucids are Greek. And the Sadducees aligned because they're, they're, they're under the Seleucids, they said, hey, we'll, we'll make a deal with you guys. It's all good. Just, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. You know, we got a political arrangement. And so the Sadducees were okay doing deals, making covenants with the Gentiles, which you weren't supposed to do under the Mosaic Law. And the Pharisees like, What? So the Sadducees were willing to do that with the Seleucids in there, and then fast forward in time a few centuries, and they're willing to do it with the Romans. The Romans are the, are the Gentile overlords when these events 
are happening. The Sadducees were interested in the written law, but not in the oral traditions. And yet, although they're interested in the written law, they disregarded a number of things in the written law or in the written text, such as they didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in the resurrection. You've heard the joke told a thousand times, but I'm sorry, I just can't help myself but not tell it one more time. That's why they were Sadducee, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Sad, you see, right? So they didn't believe, thank you, they didn't believe in some aspects of the law, and they certainly didn't follow the oral tradition. They viewed Jesus, the Sadducees, viewed Jesus as a threat, because if the people followed Jesus, the Sadducees might lose their power, they might lose their wealth, and so Jesus' teaching jeopardized the political order. They're at the top of the political order, at the top of the political hierarchy. And so Jesus' teaching destabilizes the political order, and so that's why Jesus is a threat to the Sadducees. Then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees followed the law strictly. They were strict adherents to the law and to the oral traditions that had been developed by this rabbi and that rabbi, and there's been handed down. And so you have all these oral traditions one of which they caused them to, to conclude, well, Jesus, you can't heal on the Sabbath. That man who's a paralytic, who's been paralyzed for 40 years, no way. Wait for the next day, Jesus. That would be a product of the Pharisees' oral tradition that they had passed down and that they followed in a very detailed fashion. They viewed, the Pharisees viewed obedience to the law as the way of salvation, and they really weren't political like the Sadducees were. The Pharisees viewed Jesus as a threat because if the people followed Jesus, the Pharisees might lose their religious position of authority. The Pharisees are at the top of the religious order. And so Jesus is upsetting the religious apple cart, destabilizing it. And so he's a threat to the political guys, the Sadducees, and he's a threat to the religious guys, the Pharisees, the two groups unite to kill Jesus and it begins with an arrest warrant that is issued here in our passage. We won't see the results of the arrest warrant until next time, but in the face of this arrest, that is the arrest warrant that's already been issued, surely Jesus knows about it. In the face of this, Jesus continues to methodically and faithfully teach in the temple. He doesn't leave the temple. He continues his teaching, encouraging the crowd to believe. Look at verse 33. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Jesus' death is imminent. Imminent in the sense that it will happen in six months. But Jesus is on the Father's clock not on the Sadducees or the Pharisees' clock. For Jesus' death is not the end. For Jesus' death is a return to glory, a return to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Jesus will return to the Father, which is where he came from. Look at verse 34. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. These are very sad words. These are sad, sad words that have echoed down the corridors of time 
now for 2,000 years. This is a prophecy that is still being fulfilled. Israel's Messiah offered himself to Israel, but she rejected him. And because she rejected the one and only Messiah, she looks... She looks... We'll try it without the button. Because Israel rejected the one and only Messiah, she looks for another constantly. She longs for another constantly because she rejected the one true Messiah who offered himself to her. And the one that she looks for will never come. She looks for another who will never appear because there is only one, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says that they cannot come to him. They cannot come to where he is going. And the reason they can't come is because they're unbelievers. Jesus puts it this way in the next chapter in John eight twenty one: I go away and you will seek me and die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. The unsaved, the unredeemed, are denied access to the abode of God. The unsaved are excluded from heaven, period. Because heaven is a place of righteousness. And if you have not been washed in the blood of Jesus, to use the language of Revelation, you are still dead in your sin. Maybe you're here today and you are still dead in your sins and trespasses. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you think you have access to God because you're a good person. You're not. Not compared to God. I mean, you may be better than me, and you may be better than the next guy, but then there's somebody who's better than you. And so with respect to us, it's all relative. I'm better than him, and he's better than him, but that guy's better than both of us, because for us, it's all relative. But for God, who is holy and righteous, His holiness is something that kind of makes us feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. Right? I mean, we're not that. His righteousness makes us feel... If you're honest, it convicts you is what it does. But we should love it. We should love His holiness and His righteousness because that is what makes heaven heaven. The reason heaven is wonderful or to use Paul's word. Remember, Paul is caught up in the third heaven and he's not allowed to speak of it. He's not allowed to speak of it. And he describes it with one word. One word in the Greek. Paradisus. Paradise. The reason heaven is paradise. No conflict. No death. No suffering. No pain. No more tears. The old things have passed away. Is because of God's righteousness. His holiness excludes all of those things. And the only way for you to have access to the abode of God, heaven, is to have His righteousness. But we're unrighteous by nature. So we are. We're born that way. No one has to teach the two-year-old to say no to mama. It's natural. And mama expects it. Because mama herself said no to her mama. It's natural for us. And so we need God's righteousness to have access to His place of perfect paradise 
righteousness. And the way we receive God's righteousness is that it is imputed to us, it is given to us, transferred to us, even though we don't deserve it. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. And this is why Jesus stands before his audience and he cries out because he hurts for them, because they're rejecting him. They're rejecting the access to heaven. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. Maybe you're here today and you are unrighteous. We're all born unrighteous, to be sure. We're all born the enemies of God, to be sure. But it is only if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life that you receive God's righteousness so He no longer looks at you as a sinner. He looks at you as as His righteousness. He sees His righteousness in you. This is why Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come. Because the vast majority of the crowd do not believe in Him. They've rejected Him. Don't be one of those today. Don't be one of those today. Because you don't have a guarantee on tomorrow. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. If you're worried about whether you're going to hell or going to heaven, there's an easy way to know. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. If you have trusted in Christ, then you're going. If you have not, then you're not going. You're going somewhere else. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell you where it was. You're going to hell to spend eternity in the lake of fire, a place that the scripture describes that Jesus, the soft, squishy, cuddly Jesus describes as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place of torments forever and ever. Our apostle, the apostle John describes in Revelation, Revelation 20. It's a horrible place. So trust in Christ. Now is the time. Don't wait. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for you sending Christ to die for our sins. We thank you that you've memorialized these events for us, that we may study them and be edified by them. We thank you that you send your spirit to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we may understand your word and digest it, implant it deep in our souls, that we may walk forth from here into a world that is lost and dying and be your servants, that we may be your ambassadors and that we may honor your name. Help us remember that we will stand before your Son very soon and give an account of every word that we speak and every thought that we think and every action that we do. Help us remember and give us confidence and assurance that we have security, that we are going to heaven if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life. We pray these things in the name of His Majesty, the King of the Kings, Jesus Christ Himself. Amen.